Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Now for me, being, um, being lost was particularly terrifying, and I'll, I'll tell you why. The reason being is I was raised in a charismatic church in the 90s. Okay, now if you weren't raised in a charismatic church in the 90s, praise God. Um, they were a good church, they were good people, they loved Jesus, but they were, they were caught up into what's called the rapture theology. I don't know if you guys know that, but it's when, you know, Jesus comes back, takes all the Christians to heaven, and then it, you know, leaves this period of tribulation here in the world. Now, it's a good theology, it's a good doctrine, but as a six-year-old, you don't have good theology, right? Six-year-olds don't know systematic theologies, like we're not, we don't know the eschaton and what's happening, so the, the rapture for a six-year-old, pretty terrifying thing. And so at the grocery store, here's what I think. Oh no, Jesus came back and he forgot me. Right, that's, that's my first reaction. Jesus came back and he forgot me. It's like home alone for your soul. That's what it is. That, that, that I got left behind. And so I'm terrified and trying to repent of all the, the little sins that a six-year-old me could have committed and wondering what it was that I did wrong to make Jesus forget me. And, and so I'm walking down the grocery store aisle and I see another person as I'm trying to hold it in. I'm trying not to cry. I'm, I'm anxious and terrified. And I see another person and my first reaction is, oh no, a sinner. And then I run in the other direction because they got left behind too. And so I'm walking through completely alone, completely terrified, completely afraid. And then my grandmother comes up behind me. She puts her hands on my shoulder. I turn around. She gives me a big hug, right? And everything is all right in the world because I know if anybody's getting raptured first, it's my grandmother. And so I'm okay. And I think, ah, I'm never letting go. I'm never doing that again. I'm never wandering off. I'm going to stay right here by our side, and I'm going to repent of every little thing the six-year-old me could have done. Now, have you ever been lost? Maybe not to that extent, because I was a weird kid. Um, Still am, but just a little bit older. Um, But you've been lost, and we've lost something, whether it's our keys or whether it's our minds. We've all lost something, and that's kind of how life works. That, that we lose something or someone that we love and we do whatever it takes to be able to find them, right? And that's how, how do we respond when we find what's lost? Right? We're filled with joy. We're filled with great joy. And that's what God's heart is towards us. God's heart towards us when we are lost and when we are found, God is filled with great joy. And so that should be our heart as a church for the lost, for those who are far from God, for those who are hurting, for those who are in need. That's what our heart is, to see those people meet Jesus, be saved, and to find hope and restoration. Because God's heart is for the lost, our heart is for the lost, and when people come into our church, come into our lives, and experience hope and grace, we are filled with joy. And so Jesus is going to be telling us two parables today, talking about the Father heart of God and how he rejoices over his lost people and how God responds when we repent, when we meet Jesus and we overcome our lives and sin and temptations, how God responds with great joy. So we got two parables today. First is of the lost sheep and the second is of the lost coin. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. That's where we're going to be at. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. This is what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And so he, being Jesus, tells them this parable. Okay, so here's where Jesus is at. It's about two years into Jesus's earthly life and ministry, and he's pretty popular. He's a pretty prominent preacher. People are traveling all around to come and listen to Jesus teach. And what's interesting about the way that Jesus teaches versus all the other religious leaders is that Jesus doesn't just show up, say a few words, and then leave, but Jesus is actively involved in the everyday life of the people that he surrounds himself with that he's engaging in the community and the culture of the people that he is ministering to. What we see here is that Jesus is eating with sinners. Jesus is hanging out with them. And so in Jesus' day, and it's the same in our day, that the, the reason when you share a meal with someone is because you want to get to know their story. You want to know who they are. You're building friendships. You're building relationships with that person. It's the way that we build community. And so Jesus is actively building community, and he's in these community groups. And that's the reason that we here as a church meet together in community groups, that we get together in people's homes like Jesus did. We share meals like Jesus did. We learn each other's stories. We learn to pray and to read our Bibles and to study and to hold each other accountable and to live in Christian community because Jesus was in a community group. So if Jesus needed a group, you need a group. You're not better than Jesus. And so Jesus is actively involved in these groups and as he's eating with sinners and hanging out with them and, and teaching them, another group of people come in and they begin to get frustrated at Jesus because of the people that he surrounds himself with. So basically what we see here in this text is there's three categories of people. There's three types of sinners, basically. And first is, is the rich sinners. Okay, first word he says here is he's hanging out with the tax collectors. So these are the very wealthy, rich sinners. Now, don't think of the tax collector like the guy who works for the IRS. Like, everybody hates that guy, especially come April. But don't think about that guy. Don't think about the guy who works for Uncle Sam, because in reality, tax collectors were far worse. Okay, because here's what happened. A tax collector worked was a Jewish man who worked in concert with the Roman government. So Rome came in and conquered Jerusalem and took it under the Pax Romana, and in order to do so, it oppressed them with massive amounts of laws, and it extorted from them a massive amount of taxes. And in order to receive these taxes, what they would do is they would hire other Jewish men to be able to pull the taxes from the people. So a Jewish man turns his back on his family, turns his back on his faith, turned his back on his nation, and started working in concert with Rome. And what Rome said is for the tax collectors, whatever you, whatever you pull over what we require, you can keep yourself. So you give a little bit to Rome, and then the tax collectors would keep a little bit more for themselves. So they would repo your home. They'd take your retirement. They'd, they'd take your car. They'd foreclose your house. They'd take your, take your kid's college fund. They'd leave you with basically nothing, or they'd throw you in jail. And whatever they took above what Rome asked, they'd give a little cut to Caesar, and they would keep the rest for themselves. That was the tax collector. And they were hated. They were despised. They were crooked. They were corrupt. And the tax collectors were also very wealthy. And so the, the people in Jerusalem hated the tax collectors. The tax collector's own mom probably disowned them. And in addition, there was a group of Jewish men that were anarchists known as zealots that took an oath that if they ever got along with a tax collector, they'd shank them. And whenever a tax collector wanted to go to the synagogue, the Jewish equivalent, the first covenant equivalent of the local church, that the church wouldn't even take the tithes of the tax collector. Now, you know you're bad when the church won't take your money. 
Just so you know, none of you are that bad. So Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors. And then there's another group of sinners. They're just the regular sinners. So we got the rich sinners, and then we got the regular sinners. Now, it doesn't give any qualifiers to what a regular sinner is. They're just your basic, ordinary, standard, run-of-the-mill sinners. That's, that's all I are. So here's what I think. When I read this, I think, I think about the pothead. I think about the party girl. I think about, you know, like alcoholics. I think about people from Viter, right? That's what I read this as. I'm kidding. Hey, that's just how I read the Bible. I'm just reading it, just telling you what it says, okay? I love you. My friends are from Vider. I pray for you. Um, so so who, here's who Jesus is hanging out with, okay? So he's hanging out with just the, the regular sinners, the ordinary people, the average people of the day. And he's spending time with them. He's investing in them. And he's building relationships with them. And as he's building relationships, another group of people come in, the religious people, the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, and they start becoming indignant towards Jesus. They start criticizing him. They start being frustrated towards him. They say, Jesus, you think you're some teacher? Look at the people you hang out with. Jesus, you think you're some religious leader? Look at the people you surround yourself with. Jesus, you claim to be God? Look at the people that you are around. Some teacher you are, shame on you. And really, if you think about it, don't we do the same thing today? Wouldn't people respond to the same thing today? Wouldn't they treat us in the same way if they see us hanging out with people with reputations and of ill repute? Think about who, who's the most prominent preacher in America right now. Um, and not the ones you find on Oprah, but like a real Bible teacher. Uh, in my mind, I think of a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's beloved by both secular and Christian audiences um, and because of his apologetics teaching and the way he connects grace to life. And so Tim Keller got invited to speak at Google. So you know you've made it when Google invites you to come speak about the Christian faith. And so Tim Keller is probably the most beloved preacher in, in America today. Now imagine if Tim Keller were to become friends with Shia LaBeouf or Lady Gaga and Kanye West. Let's just say they just become buddies. They start hanging out. They start spending time together, and they go to Cheddar's. And so they're hanging out Cheddar's. They get a two for 20, right? You know, they're sharing an appetizer. They're sharing some drinks. They're hanging out, having a laugh, building relationships. Tim Keller and Lady Gaga, right? What would people do? How would people respond? Well, they'd get on Facebook and type in all caps, right? Tim Keller has lost his mind. They get on Twitter and they start telling everybody all these bad negative things that Tim Keller has abandoned the faith. Then you have people writing blogs about how Tim Keller has turned his back on the religion, how he has disqualified himself for ministry. But in reality, Tim Keller is just hanging out with these guys because he wants to build relationships with them, build gospel bridges so they can meet Jesus. And that's why we do what it is that we do. And that's the same thing that Jesus was doing with these people. He wants them to meet him. He wants them to experience the kingdom of God. He wants them to get saved. So Jesus knows they're sinners, and yet he still chooses to hang out with them in their positions. And the reality is that if Jesus never ate with sinners, Jesus would have ate every meal by himself. In reality, if Jesus never hung out with sinners, Jesus would never spend time with anyone because Jesus is the only one without sin. 
So Jesus knows this, Jesus recognizes this, and Jesus is building gospel-intentional relationships with all the people, and what the religious people come in, they start criticizing him, they start being able to, to, to pull him down and to discredit his ministry, and what the religious people don't recognize is there's a third category of sinners known as the religious sinners, which they are a part of. And in reality, religion is actually the worst sin because religion is based in pride. And pride is what separates us from God, and it's what also separates us from other people. Pride is what makes us think we're self-righteous and become prejudiced to those around us. Pride is the greatest of sins. And so the religious people, they have a long finger and they love to point. But what they don't recognize is that there's other fingers pointing right back at them. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't the party girls and the potheads that crucified Jesus. It was the religious people. So if you're religious and you think that you're saved by your good works, your good deeds, your good efforts, and the way that you look and present yourself to the world around you, you need to understand that that's not something to be proud of. That's something to repent of. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that we're all lost sheep, that we've all gone astray, and that Jesus has come looking for us. And so we're all welcomed into the kingdom of God. We have to open our hearts, open our minds to be able to receive his grace. Or if we come in with a closed heart and a closed mind, then the kingdom of God will be concealed from us. And so Jesus is trying to move us into a position of response. And he does so by telling us two parables today. First is the parable of the lost sheep, and the second is the parable of the lost coin. Jesus turns to the religious leaders and he tells them this parable starting in verse 4. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So Jesus is going to tell us a series of parables, and he's going to use the illustration here of a sheep and his shepherd. Okay, now we live in Beaumont, so we don't really have a lot of sheep running around here. Um, and, and so we're kind of removed from the agricultural illustration that Jesus is using to teach this lesson. So instead of thinking about it like a, a man and a sheep and a shepherd, let's think about it like a small business. Okay, so we got a small business owner. He's got 100 sheep. Now, that's a pretty good amount of sheep. It's not a lot of sheep, but it's, it's a pretty good amount. So that means business is doing kind of well. He's got a decent-sized portfolio. Things are going okay. Um, and, and he loses one of his sheep. Now, this sheep has great value and great worth to him. And so what he does is, is he leaves the 99 in the open country to go out and find that one sheep that is lost. What I find interesting about this parable is that the guy, he, what they normally would do is they would, they would hire someone known as a hireling to go out and find the lost sheep. But this isn't what this shepherd does. This shepherd takes it upon himself with his own interests with his own intentionality, and he goes out and leaves the 99 to find the one that is lost. This shows great love. This shows great care and great concern from this shepherd to track all of the miles, to walk through all the danger and through all the darkness across all of the terrain in order to find his one lost sheep. So as we pull back from this story, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. First is, who's God in this story? The shepherd. Yes, God is the shepherd. David says in the book of Psalms, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Yes, yes. So if God is the shepherd, then what does that make you? The sheep. You're the sheep. And that is not a compliment. Okay, think about it. Are sheep smart or dumb animals? 
They're dumb. They're dumb. Right. Has anyone said, hey, you're a sheep? You know what they're saying? They're not calling you cute. They're saying you're a sheep. They're saying you're dumb. Think about it. Sheep aren't the most intelligent of animals. Like, you're not going to get one to sit. You're not going to get one to fetch. Like, they're not going to roll over. Right? Sheep have nothing impressive about them. There's nothing gifted. There's nothing talented. There's nothing impressive, really, about a sheep. And now if a sheep gets lost, it's, it's game over. Right? There's no, the sheep have no way to protect themselves. Sheep have no defense mechanisms. If a sheep gets lost, it's not going to be able to find its way home because it's a sheep. Yes, here's the impression of you. Bah! Like, that's, that's who you are. That's what you got. But think about it. There's nothing intimidating about a sheep. If a truck were to overturn in your neighborhood, you were to get on the news, and you were to see that there's a wild pack of sheep roaming through your neighborhood, what are you going to do? You're going to go pet one. Right? You're not going to be afraid of the sheep. But if it's a pack of dogs or lions or bears, you're going to be in the fetal position all day long. Because there's nothing impressive, intimidating, or tough about a sheep. And that's who you are. That's who you are. You are a sheep. Thank you. Proves my point. And think about this. Like, all sheep are nasty. Sheep are stinky. Sheep are dirty. Sheep can't clean themselves. And that they get in situations and circumstances, they can't get themselves out of it, and they won't be able to find their way back home. That's what a sheep is. So the only thing that a sheep is concerned about in life is one thing, eating. That's it. That's all a sheep does is just eat. He's got his head down, walking, eating, walking, eating, walking, eating, walking, eating. That's all a sheep is concerned about. And as its head's down, as it's walking, as it's eating, it loses sight of the shepherd, and it gets separated from the flock. And when that happens, the sheep is in grave danger. But really, that's who we are. In our everyday life, here's where we find ourselves. Day in, day out, work, school, college, kids, coworkers. We have stress, we have anxiety, we have worry, we have fear, we have sin, we have temptations. Right? We have alcohol and pornography and lust and sex and lying and gossiping. And all of our life is just the same thing over and over and over again. We're just walking through life only concerned about feeding our own desires. That's a sheep. And so when we're walking through life, what we find is that we get separated from the shepherd and we get separated from the flock. And when that happens, we are in grave danger, that we're heading in the wrong direction that we're lost and we're scared and we're terrified and we're beaten up and we're bloodied and we're battered and we're bruised and there's nothing we can do about it. And if you were to lift your head up, the good shepherd's right there. The good shepherd's right there to, to save you. The good shepherd's right there to pick you up. He's been looking for you. He'll clean you up. He's been right there always, all the time. And so Jesus is always seeking. Jesus is always searching. Jesus is always serving and Jesus always saves and it's always and only all because of Jesus. And Jesus is right there. Wherever you find yourself at, wherever you've gone through, wherever you've been, he's right there ready to pick you up and bring you back home. He's the good shepherd. And so let's take a step back and let's look at who the shepherd is. Okay, so when we, when we read this, we have this romantic idea of what a shepherd is. Because we, you know, we dress our kids up in Sunday school. We, we put a bathrobe on them and we say, be like David, the shepherd boy. We talk about in the, the, the Christmas story how the shepherds watch the, the flock at night. And so we want to be like the shepherds. So we put the bathrobe on them. We give them a piece of paper and we glue the cotton balls on it. And we're like, oh, we're the good shepherd. But that's not necessarily the way that first century audience would have heard about the shepherd. 
Because shepherds were a little bit different than the way that we romanticize them today. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a shepherd. There's nothing wrong with being a shepherd, but shepherds were just kind of weird. Shepherds were just kind of weird. Because think about it, they don't have social skills. Right? You didn't dream of growing up and being a shepherd. It's just kind of something that you fell into. Because, you know, where, who do sh- shepherds talk to? Sheep. That's who they talk to. Where do shepherds sleep? Well, wherever the sheep sleeps. Where do shepherds eat? Wherever the sheep eat. They don't have friends. They don't have a home. They just roam around. Wherever the sheep are, that's where they're at. That's who they're spending their time with. That's who they are around, just sheep. So shepherds aren't bad. They're just kind of different. And Jesus is saying, I'm like that. Jesus is saying, I'm like the shepherd. Think about it, that Jesus humbled himself to enter into this life, to take a lowly position so that he can identify with all of us in our needs wherever we are at. So think about it. Was Jesus rich or was he poor? He was poor. Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus was homeless. Jesus wasn't born in a mansion. Jesus was born in a barn. Jesus didn't have an easy life. Jesus had a difficult life. And Jesus didn't come as a king to be served, but rather he came as a shepherd to serve. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He's come looking to save his lost sheep. And that's who we are. We are his sheep. We're lost. We're alone. We're afraid. We're tired. We're anxious. And wherever we're at, that's where he is. And he's come looking for you. And so the kingdom of God is like this, that Jesus leaves heaven and he enters into this life and that he's come looking for us on a rescue mission, that he's come to seek and to save the lost, that he's wandered through darkness and through, through danger and through death just to find you wherever you're at. And when he sees you, he stops, he stoops down, he picks you up. He picks you up with his own strength, with his own effort. He picks you up, he puts you on his shoulders, and he carries you back home. Jesus literally carried your sin on his shoulders towards the cross. We're on the cross, he died in your place, giving you grace, setting you free from the situations and circumstances that you find yourself in. That Jesus saves us. I want you to think of your salvation like that. That Jesus seeks you, you don't seek him. That Jesus finds you, you didn't find him. That Jesus serves you, that Jesus saves you. It's all his good work and it's all his good will because Jesus is the good shepherd. And so every sheep, which is you, you need a shepherd. And and similarly, every sheep also needs a flock. Every sheep also needs a good flock, a group of people to walk through this life together, a group of people to hold one another accountable, a group of people to grow and to mature in faith all of the days of your life because you're not going to make it on your own because you're a sheep. You need a flock. You need a shepherd. Do you know Jesus? He is the good shepherd. Do you have a flock? Redemption would love to be your flock. We're good people who are following the good shepherd. And so some of you, you have, you've been running for a very long time. You have, you have strayed and you have wandered and you have separated yourself from God. You've been ignoring the voice of the shepherd all the days of your life. And you're bloodied and you're beaten and you're broken and you're caught up in circumstances and places that you can't get yourself out of. I want you to know that the good shepherd has been looking for you. The good shepherd has been looking for you. He's been searching for you. He's been waiting for you. And today, the reason that you're here is because the good shepherd has you cornered. He's got you right where he wants you. And that's the reason that you're here today. And the good shepherd wants you to know that he'll pick you up. He'll clean you up. He will save you today. And some of you, this is new for you. 
You've just now started to wander. You've just now started to stray, that you got your head down and all you're concerned with is your own desires. You're not listening to the voice of the shepherd. You're ignoring the shepherd. You're isolating yourself from the flock and that you're not heeding the warnings. You're going in the wrong direction. You are in grave danger. And so I would beg of you, I would plead with you, pick your head up, stop where you're at, turn around, come back home. Be a part of the family, be a part of the flock, get to know the good shepherd. And so the good news about the good shepherd is that it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how far you have run. It doesn't matter what has been done to you. He's always right there. And he always saves. He's always happy to save. He's always ready and willing to take you back. He'll take you back right now. He'll pick you up. You don't have to clean yourself up. He'll clean you up. You don't have to pick yourself up. He'll pick you up. You don't have to make your way back. He'll make a way for you. You don't have to walk alone. He'll walk with you. He's a good shepherd. Jesus always serves. Jesus always saves. Jesus always loves. Jesus is always ready, waiting right there with open arms to bring you back home. And the only thing that you have to do to receive this amazing good news of this good shepherd is to repent. That's it. That's all you have to do is to repent, to cry out to him, to call out to him. Wherever you're at, whatever you've done, lift your voice, and he's right there. He's a good shepherd. And all we have to do is repent. And so Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees and to the other people around, to the sinners, because he wants to move us to a place of repentance. He wants us to be moved to a position and a posture of repentance for all of the days of our lives. So this is what Jesus says next here in verse 7. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, quote unquote, who need no repentance. So Jesus says, over no righteous persons. What Jesus is doing is he's kind of giving a backhanded compliment to the Pharisees around them because they don't think that they have any sin, that they think they're perfect, they think that they're, they're, they're moral and they follow the law. But what they don't recognize is that they've turned the law from protection to prison and they've encaptured themselves in their own trap. And so Jesus is trying to move all of us to a place and a posture of repentance. And he wants us to see the way that God responds when we repent. Now, repentance isn't a word that we talk about in the church a lot anymore. There are a lot of preachers, a lot of churches, which a lot of people, but they don't actually preach repentance. And so what we have is we have churches filled with Christians who don't practice repentance, and if we as Christians don't practice repentance nor preach repentance, what we're doing is we're really creating a 21st century Pharisee. That's all we're making in our churches is 21st century Pharisees. People who are given to hard religion, do this, don't do that. You got to follow these rules, these regulations. Or people who are devoted to soft religion, which is basically whatever I want, when I want, however I want it, I'll do me. In the end, it's all going to be okay. Both are lies, both are religion, both need repentance. And so we need to teach repentance and practice repentance so we can be a people of repentance. Now, when you hear the word repent, it has a negative connotation in our society today. That word repentance, you probably have a negative and low view of the word repentance. What do you think of when you hear that word repent? Do you think about the crazy lady on Facebook typing in all caps? Is that what you think about? Do you think about the guy with the King James Version Bible who's just yelling, turn or burn? 
You think about that guy? What about the guy with the picket sign who's standing on the street corner picketing and protesting? That's probably what we have in our mind when we understand the word repentance. But that's not biblical repentance. That's not what Jesus means. And in reality, there is no rejoicing if there is no repentance. That if you, you cannot rejoice in the Lord if you do not repent to the Lord. There is no rejoicing where there is no repentance. Jesus, Jesus is all about repentance. Jesus is relentless when it comes to repentance. I know we have this idea that Jesus is like some hippie who's white and has long flowing hair and just runs around saying pithy Zen sayings to make everyone feel better. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus has a mission. Jesus has a vision. And Jesus has the kingdom of God and he wants you to belong to it. And so Jesus preaches repentance. The first sermon that Jesus ever preached First word of his first sermon is repent. Jesus' first sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Repent. First word of his sermon, at least I open up with a question. Right? I, I ask a question to get you to stop looking at your iPhones and pay attention to me for 45 minutes. Jesus, Jesus just like, repent, right out the gate. And the first sermon of the first church, when Peter stood up on Pentecost to preach, first word, guess what it was? Repent. So the message of Jesus and the message of the church is married to repentance. Because what we need to understand is that where there is no repentance, there is no rejoicing. And so so what Jesus is trying to tell us is that we need to change our direction. And that's literally what repentance means. Repentance is a change of direction. It's a change of mind. It's a change of desires. It's a change of our attentions. Repentance literally is an about face. That's what it means. And so here's what it looks like. One theologian says that when we are born, we are born bent in towards self and sin. That's who we are. We are born in sin. So we're facing our sin. Our natures, our desires are going the wrong direction in the wrong way. That's who we are. All we care about is our own selves. We're bent in towards sin and self. What repentance is, repentance is an about face. So before our our face was to sin, our back was towards Jesus as the Son, repentance literally means an about face. It's a change of direction. That now my face is towards Jesus as the Son, and my back is towards my sin. That I have a new nature, a new heart, a new passions with new desires. I don't want to live that old life. I'm going to live a new life by the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's what repentance is. The Puritans would call it living quorum Deo. This means living in the face of God rather than living in the land of death. That's what repentance is. And so we need to understand biblical repentance because when we understand it, then it becomes the natural evidence of the gospel in our lives and on display to the world around us. One commentator says repentance is this. It's confession, it's confessing, it's compelling, and it's life-changing. So these are the, the three marks of genuine biblical repentance. So first is confessing. That means we got to confess what it is that we have done. we got to say it. So repentance, it starts in your mind, and then it moves into your mouth. It starts in the mind, and it moves down to the mouth, and it involves confessing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And, and so we need to confess what it is that we've done. Lord, this is where I'm at. This is what I've done. This is what I'm walking through. I have strayed. I have wandered away from you. Lord, forgive me. we got to confess with our Sins. Now, does God know, does God know your, your heart? Yes. Does God know your, your mind? Absolutely. 
But you need to confess with your mouth. You need to say it out loud. Name your sin. Call it out. Own it. You know what you've done. Others might know what you've done. So God definitely knows what you've done. Don't hide it. Just say it. Confess with your mouth. Now, this looks different in different ways. So you're reading your Bible, and you see that your, your, your life doesn't line up with his word? Stop and confess. Lord, I, I don't line up with your word here. Forgive me. Confession in prayer as the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. Stop. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Ask him to empower you to overcome your sin and temptation. And this is confessing in Christian community. That there's a group of people in their community groups or in, in, in your friends and family who love the Lord, who have agreed to walk with you, to, to become disciples and to make disciples alongside of you, confess to them. Now, don't get on Facebook and let all the world know exactly what it is that you've done in your deepest, darkest secrets. Like, that's, don't do that. And be careful who you confess your sins to because not everybody has your best interest in mind. So you need to have a good Christian community and accountability for you to practice repentance through confessing. And let me say this one more time about confessing. I need you to name your sin. Say it. Don't be vague with what you've done. Don't say, well, I made some mistakes or, well, I've been having a hard time. No, stop. Name it. Say it out loud what you have done. Say, Lord, I got drunk. Lord, I looked at porn. Lord, I cheated on my wife. Lord, I lied to my boss. Name your sin. Because when you name that sin, it loses its power over you. When you name that sin, it becomes real to you. It's not a figment of your imagination. You see it as the assault on the kingdom of God that it is. And when you recognize and you name that sin and you repent of that sin through confessing, what it does is it compels you to change that it brings a compelling nature into your walk, that you don't want to live the old life anymore. You feel remorse. You feel, you feel ashamed of your old sin. Not a shame that is, is weighing you down, but a shame that is moving you to glory in Jesus, that you genuinely feel remorse over the actions that you've done, and you feel bad enough to actually want to do something about it instead of just wallowing in it. In 2 Corinthians, it says that there is a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is remorse. Godly sorrow is repentance. You know, there is a difference between remorse and repentance. Do you know that? A lot of people feel regret or remorse over the things that they have done, but it doesn't produce or compel that genuine change. I was thinking about this this week because I woke up Thursday and I felt like total garbage. You might be able to hear it right now. Like, I feel like garbage. I got an upper respiratory thing going on. I got a sinus infection going on. I'm all hopped up on cold meds. And I woke up feeling like total garbage. And then I had this weird thought that in my early 20s, this is how I felt all the time. Because all night long, I'd stay up and drink a case of Lone Star and Shiner and smoke a whole pack of cigarettes in an hour. And that was my life for about five years. And, and I would wake up every morning and I'd feel terrible. I feel like my body had betrayed me. I felt like my, my, my lungs had been in a UFC cage match. Anybody else? That's how I felt. I'm like, good Lord, I made the worst decisions. I regretted it. I was remorseful, both emotionally and mentally and physically. I was like, I can't believe I did those things last night. I'm never doing that again. And guess what I did? I did it again. Because I felt remorse, but I didn't have any genuine repentance. There is a difference. Because worldly sorrow leads to death. That just means it produces more sin. That you're beat up, you're, de you're defeated, you feel destroyed, so you're like, what's the point? So you're just going to continue in that own direction. But godly sorrow, repentance, is a change of direction in your life. 
It compels you to walk through what it is that you need to do so you can experience the life change. So this means you need to be in accountability because you're the reason you got in the mess you are in to begin with. You're not going to be the one who gets yourself out of it. It's just how it works. You need people around you to walk with you, to help you, and to hold you accountable. We've got to walk through it. It compels us. And for those people who take the steps of confessing and of compelling, what it does is it produces real, genuine life change. It's life-changing. That you, you, you have experience of, of God in a whole new way. That you don't live your old life. You have a new life. You don't have the old nature. You have a new nature. You don't have the old desires. You have a new desire. It changes who you are. Jesus literally changes who we are. Do you believe that? Do you know that? And that happens when we practice repentance. And so when we repent, how does God respond? What does God do? See, a lot of you, you have this understanding. You think God is angry at you, that God is mad at you, that God is in heaven with a lightning bolt in hand, and he's got his eye on you, and he's just ready to strike. You think that God has his finger on the smite button, and he's like, if, you come, if I have to come down there, I'm going to get you. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not how God responds. What does it say here? How does God respond when we repent? He rejoices. He rejoices. He throws his arms open. He's happy. He's glad. He welcomes you back home. When we repent, God rejoices. When we repent, God rejoices. He's happy to save. He celebrates. He's glad. He says, you were lost, but now you're found. You were far, but now you're close. Welcome home. God rejoices. God celebrates. And so what we need to understand is that the religious people give God no reason to rejoice. That's what he's saying. Jesus is turning to him and he's saying, you guys give me no reason to rejoice because you're stubborn, you're hard-hearted, you're proud, you're obstinate. God's not happy with you. God doesn't rejoice over you because you're making it painful and problems for everyone else. And see, here's the deal about religion, is the religious sinners, they're sheep too, but they're trying to be a shepherd. And that people who are proud are trying to be the shepherds over other people's lives, and you make a terrible shepherd. You make a bad shepherd. You're not a good shepherd. Here's what religion does. It comes upon a sheep who's lost and says, what are you doing? Well, I'm lost. Tough. Pick yourself up. Clean yourself up. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I have hooves. I can't clean myself. I'm a sheep. And it says, you're bloody, I would help you, but I don't want to get my hands dirty. Oh, you're bruised? Well, you earned it, you deserved it. You should try to do better. Here's 10 simple steps to have a better life. Follow me, better luck next time. That's what religion does, and that's not good news at all. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, there you are. I've been looking for you. I've been searching for you. I've been waiting for you. I'm right here. I'm ready. I'm willing. I'll pick you up. I'll clean you up. I'll take you back home. I'll take you home right now. Because Jesus is the good shepherd. And he's always there for us. He's always ready for us. He's always saving us. And so Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees another parable because sometimes people are so thick, you got to tell them twice. Amen? So you got to tell them twice. And so he tells them another parable, and he, he wants them to move in response. So this is the second parable he says. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice. There's her word again. Rejoice. Rejoice with me. 
For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's our word, rejoice and repentance. Now God in Jesus Christ is trying to illustrate the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is revealed through a people who repent and rejoice. A parable is a short story with a big idea. So that is the big idea. And in order to illustrate this, he tells them a second parable. And this time he uses the story of a woman and a coin. Now, it doesn't give us any information about the woman because that's not necessarily the point. But what we can ascertain from this parable is that the woman was probably single, most likely a widow, and most likely poor. Because it doesn't give us any, um, it doesn't say she has a husband, and in that day, there would have been, that would have been a big deal. And we can, uh, we can gather that she would be poor because 10 coins is not a whole lot. And so what the home of the woman would look like is probably the size of one of your bedrooms in your house, probably about that big. So next time you go and you lay in bed, I want you to look up and think, this is probably the size of Jesus' home, and it's also the size most people live in in the world today. Think about that. So this woman is living in this small home, and they don't have windows. The walls are thick. The floors are covered in dirt, and so there's no light. There's no electricity. So even in the daytime, if you drop something, you have to get down on your hands and knees. You have to light a lamp. You have to sweep the floor, and you have to find it. So that's where the woman's at. And she drops one of her 10 silver coins. Okay, now, it's hard to put a value on how much these coins are worth, but think about it. They're probably worth $100. It's about a day's wage. And so this woman has 10 coins, which means she has a total wealth of $1,000. I know her college kids are like, man, that's, she's loaded. That's not a lot of money. Because um, think, she has to use this money for all of her life, for grocery, for shopping expenses, for her rent, for her mortgage, for whatever it is. This is all she has to dole out over the course of her life to, for her own provisions. And so she drops one of these coins, about 100 bucks. What are you going to do if you drop a $100 bill? Well, you're going to go looking for it, right? I don't care how rich you are. You drop a $100 bill, you're on your hands and knees freaking out through the rest of the day trying to find that $100. You drop a dime, I'll let that one go. But you drop a $100, like you're looking for that, amen? And so I want you to see that this woman is looking for her coin. So who is God in this parable? The woman. God is the woman. In this parable, God is the woman, so that makes you the coin. And the big idea here is that God never stops looking for his people. That God is never stops looking for his people. That you have great value, you have great worth, and you have a great purpose for God, and God has come looking for you. So I want you to think of your salvation like that. That God seeks us, we don't seek him. That God finds us, we don't find him. And that God is the only way for us to redeem our value and our worth. That God never stops looking for his people. See, the coin doesn't go looking for the woman. The woman goes looking for the coin. The coin doesn't save itself. The, the woman saves the coin. The coin doesn't just roll up the side of the table and hop back into the plate. No, that's not how coins work. So the woman finds the coin. The woman redeems the value and worth of the coin. Because outside of the woman's hand, the coin has no value. Right? It's just a coin unless it gets spent. So what this means is that in the woman's hand, the coin redeems its value. For some of you, God is reaching down from heaven into your hearts today to redeem your value and your worth. That God has great value for you. God has great worth for you. And that God has been looking for you. And the only thing we have to do is to repent. 
to respond to Jesus through repentance. And when we repent, God rejoices. What does this woman do next? She gathers all of her friends together. She brings them over to their house. And the woman throws a party. She throws a party. When we find Jesus, God throws a party. God throws a party on our behalf. He celebrates. And I know when we hear, typically what we think when we hear this verse is that the angels are the ones who celebrate. When a sinner gets saved and what's lost is found is saved, the angels rejoice. And that may be true, but that's not actually what we see here in this text. What do we see? That there's rejoicing before the angels. What this means is the angels watch. So the angels are the ones who are singing and celebrating and holy, holy, glory, glory. But when we repent, it's the angels who watch and it's God who rejoices. It's God who celebrates. It's God who explodes in laughter. It's God who explodes in joy. He throws a party when we repent. He's happy to serve. He's happy to save. He's happy to welcome us back home. And so he throws his arms open. He says, you were lost, but now you're found. Come on back. Welcome home. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that we serve. You guys are ridiculous, man. Come on. This is a reason to worship and to celebrate and to rejoice. God's not angry. God's glad over our repentance. That's good news. This is really, really good news. And so the big idea is that the kingdom of God is here for us now. That God rejoices over us. God celebrates with us. And that God's heart is for you who are far. But when it comes to repentance, we struggle. Do we not? Do we struggle when it comes to repentance? Yeah, we all struggle. And it's a hard road, but it is a road that God has called us to walk. And so as I've been talking to different people in our church over the year that we've been together, I've been praying for all of you. And what I've noticed is there's, there's basically like five barriers. There's five, five struggles that we have when it comes towards our repentance. When it comes to living the authentic Christian life and, and experiencing the kingdom of God in the world around us. So what I've seen is there's basically five, five areas that we struggle with. And the first is some of you, you, you feel as if you have to earn God's love. You think you have to earn it, that you, you, need to, you need to do these things to clean yourself up, to present yourself before God, because if you go to him right now, he'll be upset with you. That God will be angry or that God would be distant from you because of where you're at. I want you to know that that's the furthest thing from the truth. That you can go to God anytime, wherever you're at, because he's always there. That you don't have to clean yourself up, he will clean you up. You don't have to earn God's love, he's given it to you freely. Some of you are scared to pray because you think that if you pray, then God's going to know what you've done. I want to let you in a little secret, he already knows. He already knows, so you can go to him and he's not surprised. It's not like God's in heaven going like, you did what? Oh my me, I can't believe you would do that. He knows. He already knows, so you can go to him, he loves you, he'll talk with you. And another reason that we, we, we struggle with repentance is because you feel as if God has abandoned you. You feel like God is distant. You feel as if God is far, or that God's not listening, or that God has abandoned you. I want you to know, that's not true. It's not true at all. Might I submit to you that it's not God who moved, but it was us. It's not God who walked away, but it was you. It's not God who got busy. We got busy. 
And wherever we're at, we can pick our head up, and he's right there ready for us. You don't have to earn God's love, and God has not abandoned you. God is not far, God is close. God is not a force, God is a father, and he loves you. And some of us, we feel as if we've run too far. That it's been so long since you've been to church, so long since you've prayed that you're too far gone, that the good shepherd has given up hope looking for you. But I want you to know he left heaven to earth to find you. And he's been looking for you. And he never stops looking for you. He's coming for you. He's seeking you. He finds you. He is always there and you've never run too far. And some of you feel as if you've done too much. That who you are and what you've done or what has been done to you is just so shameful, so painful that God can't forgive you. I want you to know that you have not done too much. You have not done too much. No matter how bloody you are, no matter how bruised you are, no matter how broken you are, the good shepherd's right there to pick you up, to heal you, to restore you, and to give you value. And then some of you, lastly, you struggle to repent because you refuse to repent. That you're religious, you're hard-headed, you can't say I'm sorry, you can't say I'm wrong, you can't admit it, and you don't want to lose whatever grip you have onto the perfect life you think you got, and you're refusing to repent, to open your heart, to lay it down, and to receive from God. And I want you to know that God is not impressed with your religion. God is not impressed with religion, but rather he rejoices with repentance, He's not impressed with religion. He rejoices in repentance. God is happy to save. Where are you at? He's ready and waiting for you. What are you going through? He's always right there. Jesus always seeks. Jesus always serves. Jesus always searches. Jesus always saves because he's a good shepherd and he loves you. He loves you. So how many of you guys this year have experienced genuine life change because of Jesus? In the last year, genuine life change. Yes. How many of you guys have come into church and you've met Jesus? He's changed your life forever. Amen. Yes. People experiencing real, genuine, authentic life change. I want you to know that Jesus does change lives. And so what this means for us here at Redemption is that we are a church for the one. We're a church for the one. We don't want to be a church that's just filled with 99 sheep. We are a church that's always seeking after the one. Just as God's heart is towards you, our heart as a church is towards others. That we made a space for you to come into the church, so you make a space in your life for others to experience the grace of God. That redemption is a church for the one, for the one that is lost, for the one that is hopeless, for the one that is broken. That's who our heart is for. We are a church for the one. Let us not forget what Jesus has done to us so that way we can go and do it for others. We're a church that's about the one. Every single week in our Sunday morning prayer, before the gathering starts, we pray every single week, Lord, one more. Let one more person meet Jesus. Let one more person join the church. We pray and we cry out, God, one more to save one more, one more salvation, one more week, one more year, one more life changed. We are a church that is about the one because Jesus left the 99 to find you. So we do the same for others. So here's what I want to do in closing. I, I want to just share some stories of life change that have happened in our church. Because God's doing a good work here. And so I got on our private Facebook page for Redemption Church, and I just asked, hey, who's got some testimonies of what Jesus is doing? Has, have you met Jesus in the last year? What has he done for you? How has he saved you? Have you joined the church? What good work has come from, from Jesus' work in your life? 
And I got stories about what Jesus has done in the life of our church, and it's absolutely amazing. One of the greatest jobs, parts of my job, I love my job, one of the greatest parts of my job is seeing people meet Jesus, seeing people experience life change. It's the best part of my job. I love seeing it. So I want to share with you five stories from people in our church. And they're they're short. We worked really hard. We got our editors together. We condensed them down. But listen to what Jesus is doing. First, she says, I had divorced parents. I have a biological dad that I've never known and a dad who did all that he could do. Growing up, I attended church like clockwork every Sunday and Wednesday, but the older I got, the more influenced by the world I became. I began to question the whole church thing. So at 15, I started working a part-time job um, so that I could quit going to church. Clever girl. I said a lot of things that I did not uh, mean, and I've done a lot of things that I'm not even comfortable confronting yet. Five years and a lot of pain later, here I am. I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. I serve weekly, and I'm trying to be who God has made me to be. I've got a long way, but it's better than where I used to be. Amen. That's life change. That's life change. So can the good shepherd meet a 15-year-old girl who's trying to run from God? Yes, the good shepherd can find her. The good shepherd can find this girl and give her purpose for her life because he's a good shepherd. Next it says, I was raised in church, and I considered myself a good Christian girl. I didn't drink, I didn't cuss, and I didn't have sex. I was a good kid, but I don't know if I truly knew who Jesus was. The month before I graduated high school, I saw two people killed. What had started as a fun day at the beach left me on the floor in a bathroom stall in hysterics. There was a car accident, and two people walking on the sidewalk were struck by a drunk driver. My carefree good girl life came to a crashing end, and I spent endless anxious hours in the month that followed questioning death and suffering, and I realized how fragile I was. But on the floor in that bathroom is when I finally met Jesus. He didn't just take all my questions and anxiety away, but he met me in the midst of it. I felt him there in his presence, and that's where I still meet him today. When I don't understand life, he shows me he is my life, and he holds me together and sustains me completely. Amen. Can the good shepherd meet a girl crying on the bathroom floor all alone? The good shepherd's right there. The good shepherd's right there for her. Next one, she says, I was molested. I didn't truly understand what had happened to me until I was a teenager, and I was forced to have sex against my will again. That night, all the pain and grief came flooding back in. I was very depressed and suffered from extreme anxiety, which led to eating disorders like anorexia. Unable to deal with the pain, I turned to drugs and alcohol and promiscuous sexual relationships to numb my pain. But nothing worked. A friend of mine kept inviting me to church, but I wanted nothing to do with it. However, they were persistent, and so I went. It's a good friend. During the worship time, I felt the presence of God for the first time, and I knew that he loved me and he hadn't abandoned me. I joined a small group and made new friends. I still have my struggles, but I know that I'm not alone. Amen. Amen. So not only do we have a good shepherd who saves, but we also have a good flock. We have a good flock who's persistent with their friends, who knows the good shepherd and wants their friends to meet the good shepherd so they can experience change. Next is, I'm a recovering prodigal son and a daddy to a beautiful little girl. I grew up in a legalistic church environment. I served at a local church for years, but I had come bitter and resentful toward the God that I had grown up learning about. And then I walked away from the church. I became very passionate about all things transient, drugs, sex, and alcohol became my only escape. It took five years, but I started to grow tired of that life, and I knew that it was being wasted. 
I realized that if I couldn't change for my own sake, I needed to change for my daughter's. I lacked purpose and direction, running, uh, I lacked purpose and direction, and I had been running from him for a long time. I made a decision shortly before I turned 29 to stop running and to put my trust back in him and become something more than a passenger in my life. One night I was drunk and saw a Facebook post from a friend talking about a new church in Beaumont called Redemption, and here I am today. Amen. Amen. Can the good shepherd use technology to find a stubborn sheep who's running from him? Yes, absolutely. Last one. These are amazing. We got more, we got more stories we could share, but this is the last one. It says, I was born in a Christian home. I'm seeing a trend here, right? I was born in a Christian home, and I was raised by my grandparents. So I knew everything about God since I was a child. Eight years ago, I decided to leave the church. I thought I didn't need it, and then I took a bad road. One day, I was very bad off, confused, and something inside me told me every single time, you are wrong, and you know that I have chosen you even before you were born. So this guy's running for eight years. I imagine the good shepherd's like, come on, sheep. Like, you're taking a long time. This is a stubborn sheep. Eight years, he's dragging this guy. And then he says, and the guy calls out. He says, I'm desperate. Show me what you want from me. The next day, I was looking on Facebook, and I saw a video of Redemption Church come out of nowhere. And then I realized this is my answer. I decided to obey, and I became a part of this amazing church, and I have great brothers and sisters. It truly is a place to belong rather than a place to attend. That's amazing. That's amazing. So the good shepherd is looking for you. Do you know Jesus? He's the good shepherd. There's a good flock here at Redemption. We're not perfect, but we are following the perfect good shepherd together. We'll walk with you. We'll ask questions with you. We'll journey with you. We'll figure out what it means. And together we can reveal the kingdom of God through repentance and through rejoicing. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome, too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.